Check. Is this good? Should I go higher or lower? Okay. What? Check. This is me preaching. This is me reading my notes of preaching. This is me standing up. All right. You can make your way back to your seats. Let me open us up in prayer, and then I'm going to read our uh, scripture reading. Actually, let me do that the other way. Let me read our scripture reading, and then I will open us up in prayer. So if you get your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 19, we're looking at verses 45-48. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it, in, made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you again for this time. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can come to it. Uh, that that you speak to us through it. Um, and God, we ask that you would do that today as Tanner comes and shares with us, that you would speak to us through your word uh, and through your messenger. Um, God, that um, you would open uh, this text too. It's a small text, um, but that you would um, give us a, a, a clearer picture of you and who you are um, and uh, the word that you would have for us. Um, Father, we continue to pray that you would um, through the power of your spirit, working through your word, that you would bring revival to our community. God, that um, hearts that have been seeking um, other things uh, in the world, um, hearts that are are trying to fill that void uh, that they have, um, and that have been seeking in, in all the different things that the world has to offer and yet feeling unfulfilled. God, we, we pray that, uh, the spirit would move and that it would direct, uh, people to your son, Jesus Christ. Um, uh, that the spirit would, would open our eyes, that he would, uh, till up our hearts, that he would, um, warm our affections, um, and that working through the word, the gospel would be preached and uh, people would believe and turn to Jesus Christ for salvation. God, we ask that you would do that not only through our church, but through every church in Blount County um, that is uh, on a weekly basis preaching uh, the word of God. Uh, Father, we we pray. Um, we have friends um, with us tonight from Broadway Baptist Church. God, we pray that um, that church would be a blessing to its community. Um, that you would use uh, Pastor Tony and and the other people uh, and and staff and leaders in that church um, to continue to minister to that congregation, to minister to that community, um, to preach the gospel, um, and that you would use it mightily um, to draw people to Jesus Christ. And we pray that for our church. We pray that for um, all uh, gospel preaching, Bible believing, Christ centered churches in our community. 
God, we desperately need revival. We desperately need uh, for you to turn uh, our hearts uh, back to your son. God, we ask that you would um, do that, that you would bless um, the preaching of your word. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. How are we doing this evening? Good. All right. So for those of you that don't know me, which should be very few of you, um, my name's Tanner. I am the youth pastor, next generation pastor technically, at Mount Olive Baptist Church in Knoxville. And I was a member here for a while until God called me to Mount Olive. It'll be three years ago in January. Uh, but obviously, me and Ash have, have stayed close, and I've stayed close with a lot of you. And one thing that's encouraging to me, and that has been encouraging to me, is every time I've gotten the opportunity to come back, is yes, there's a lot of faces I recognize, but there's always some that I don't. And that is a really encouraging thing. So I'm really happy to be here. Um, I'm always thankful to get the opportunity to share the word with you. Um, and so I'm, I'm excited. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll get started. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for this evening, God. I, I pray that I'm here for the next few minutes. You uh, use me to, to bring truths out of this word, truths that can help this church, truths that, that, that tell us more about you, God, and that you help me be clear in communicating, and you help all of us be clear in hearing your spirit. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So this is an interesting passage. And what I mean by that is it's short, and a lot of people agree on the brute facts of what's going on. Here's what I mean by that. A lot of people agree that what happens is Jesus enters the temple, he gets mad, he flips some tables, Pharisees get mad, and then Jesus leaves. That's what happened. But what I want to focus on tonight is not so much what happened, but for us to try and understand why it happened. And to show why it's important for us to put time into understanding why it happened, I did something that you should never, ever do when faced with a tough theological question. I typed in Google, why did Jesus flip the tables in the temple? And I got some interesting answers. Uh, my favorite was uh, a blog. It was like the third most popular hit. It was JedoraVanessa.com. And her main point is that Jesus cleanses the temple of Solomon. Let me stop there. If somebody makes a point to say this is the temple of Solomon, you know it's going to get weird like the rest of the way. While this happened so long ago, there are many lessons we can take from this act, okay, and apply them to our lives today. Jesus' act shows us how important temples are and why we should strive to attend the temples today. So, you have someone who affirms all of the brute facts of what happened, but their takeaway is that this points to the existence of other temples where there are holy and sacred acts that take place in, and you should strive to go to them. And if you were to continue to read this blog, like I did, it goes on to lay out a Mormon theology of temples, right? Now, this is an extreme example. I don't think many of us would accidentally click a blog about Mormonism and then get sucked in. At least I hope not. But I have seen this specific passage used to justify all sorts of things on, like, wild different arrays of the spectrum. On the one end... You have people using this passage on like radical social justice ends and, and saying this is why 
we just need to reject the established church and it's just me and my Bible in the woods and this is why Jesus was here. He would, he would flip the tables of the church. Or on the other end, I've seen people use this passage basically to justify living a life of conflict towards their enemies and saying they don't have to be peacemakers because Jesus flipped the tables and he got angry, so it's okay for me to be angry. So what do we do with a passage like this, right? I think what you need to do when you're interpreting a passage like this and what we'll do today is that you need to boil it down to the key question of the passage, right? What is the passage getting at? What makes it tick? And I think there is a central question that we need to understand here. And it's a simple one. Why is everyone so mad, right? You see Jesus acting out. You see the Pharisees trying to kill Jesus for what he has done. Why is everyone so upset? Why is Jesus flipping tables? And why are the Pharisees plotting murder, right? That's the questions we need to think about here. So we're going to kind of do this in, in three steps. So first... We're going to look at the context, we're going to kind of walk through, get a handle of what's going on. And then two, we're going to try and answer those questions. And then finally, we're going to talk about what that means for us today as a church, hopefully. So before we can start to answer the question, we do need to have a good grip of what the basic facts of this passage are, right? So we are at the beginning of what is called Passion Week, typically. And this would have been the week Passover. So Jesus has just made his triumphant entry, right? A few, I'm sure you talked about that a few weeks ago, the triumphant entry. And then last week you would have talked about Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. This is the next thing Luke shows us is the cleansing of the temple. And because it is Passover week, you have an extra hundreds of thousands of Jews just hanging out in the city. They've made this pilgrimage. So the city is at its absolute capacity when it comes to worshipers and people staying and everything going on. So everything that happens during Passion Week is amplified because it is Passover week. So in verse 45, we get the next action here that Luke shows us, and that's Jesus entering the temple. Now, the way the temple would have been laid out is really interesting. There would have been a large outer court area, and then as you get closer and closer to the inner room or the Holy of Holies, you have these courts that are increasingly more and more restrictive. So you have the large outer court, which is court of the Gentiles. And then you have a court that only Jewish people could go to. And then you had a court where only Jewish men could go to. And as you kind of go up the, the ranks here, it gets more and more restrictive. Now, like we said, due to this being Passover week, the temple is an absolute madhouse right now. There is an increased demand for sacrifices. And those of you that have taken economics, when there is a demand, there's typically going to be a supply to meet that demand. So that's where we get the merchants and the money changers. They set up shop. And what are the three most important rules of business? It's location, 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 right? So if you are going to set up your shop to meet the increased demand of people needing to sacrifice and you want the best location possible, where is that going to be? As close to the temple as possible. How close can you get to the temple? The court of the Gentiles. So what we are left with is this place that is meant to be a place of worship, the court of the Gentiles, is now just a bustling market of religious commerce, right? So that is the situation. Now, here's an interesting thing to consider. Is it inherently wrong that they're selling animals a sacrifice? I would argue no, right? You have people coming to sacrifice, which is the lawful thing to do. 
They can't carry sacrifices that far. They need to buy sacrifices. So what they are doing in itself is not inherently wrong. What becomes wrong is the heart behind it and how they are doing it, which is an important thing for us to consider in our lives. Even if what we're doing is not technically wrong, if we're doing it in a way that's exploitive or taking advantage of people, then that thing becomes wrong, right? So anything can become wrong if you do it in the wrong way. So back to the merchants, the money changers. I think the issue here is that they were providing a barrier that was preventing people from worshiping. And I think if we look at the text, we see that they were providing this barrier in two different ways. So the first way is that they inflicted a financial burden on those who would want to worship. If you can't afford what the money changers and the merchants are charging you, then you don't get to sacrifice today, right? You don't get to participate in Passover. You don't get to participate in worship. I believe if you look at when the sacrificial system was instituted, this was never God's intention. So Leviticus chapter five, verse seven says, but if he cannot afford a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. So you have this principle of, hey, if you can't afford this sacrifice, it's not important that it's a lamb. It's important that you have a sacrifice so you can get this. But the Leviticus, <clears throat> sorry, Leviticus chapter 5, verse 11 takes it a step further. But if he cannot afford two turtle doves or two pigeons, then he shall bring as his offering for sin that he has committed a tenth of an epaph of fine flour for a sin offering. He shall put no oil on it and shall put no frankincense on it, for it is a sin offering. So we see that from the institution of the sacrificial system, God made provisions for as many people as possible to worship. It was always the plan that finances should not prevent you from worshiping, right? That shouldn't be a barrier to you getting to participate in the sacrificial system. God made provisions for that, but we see these merchants and these money changers undoing that. They're rebuilding back up these walls that God never meant to be there. So that's the first way. The second way, we kind of talked about this already, but where they are located, they are set up in the courts of the Gentiles. If you were a Gentile, which pretty sure probably everyone in this room is, that would have been the only place you could worship, right? If you were truly a devout Yahweh follower, your only option was the court of the Gentiles. So instead of this space being a place that all who truly love the Lord could worship, it has been transformed into this religious marketplace to enhance the worship of the Jewish people. These merchants are quite literally trading the worship of God for a chance to make a buck. They are taking away the chance for a whole group of people to worship just to have a better spot to set up their booths. So Jesus begins to teach, right? So this makes, this is, this pushes Jesus to flip over the tables. Jesus begins to teach as he is purifying the temple. Now, the interesting thing about this, this scene of Jesus flipping over the tables, purifying the temple, it occurs in all three, what we call the synoptic gospels. And what that means, that's just Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We call them the synoptic gospels. And this scene appears in all three. But this next line that Jesus says in verse 46, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. That exact line also occurs in all three synoptic gospels. So I think it is fair to assume that God really wanted us to understand what Jesus is getting at there, right? Because it is, it is there in all three. So this quote that Jesus has is actually a composite reference to two different Old Testament verses. 
The first is Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. And the second is Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. So put a pin in that. We're going to dig into that a little bit later. I just wanted to make you aware of that's what Jesus is doing here. But as Jesus begins to teach, the Pharisees start to get, we call it mad. They get more than mad. Uh, now, the interesting thing is it was not uncommon for people to teach in the temple like this. However, the Pharisees have a problem with what Jesus is saying here. In fact, they have such a problem that they decide right then that they are going to kill Jesus. We see that in the text, right? They were seeking to destroy him. Now, this was a breaking point for the religious establishment. We may not realize this because, you know, we read the other Gospels too, but in Luke's Gospel, this is the first explicit mention of a plot to kill Jesus. This is the first time Luke explicitly says, hey, they wanted to kill Jesus. When was it? It was right here when Jesus was teaching. This was the breaking point. The problem is they can't make a move right now. They can't make a move and kill Jesus yet. Why? Because there is way more people in the temple court than normal, and pretty much all these people are loving everything Jesus is saying. They're captivated by Jesus. If they try and make a move now, then the mob will be on Jesus' side, which is typically not what you want to do, right? You typically want to have the mob on your side. And this points, I think, to the big issue we see here, which is the classism that the Pharisees have established. There is such a disconnect between the people and the religious leaders that Jesus is beloved by the common man, but despised by the Pharisees. And that's what we see going on here. So that leads us to the, to the core, what I think is a core question of this passage. Why is everyone so mad? Why is this the case? Why are the Pharisees so mad that they want to kill Jesus? Why is Jesus so mad that he flips over the tables and drives the merchants out? Well, when I was thinking about this question, I thought about something completely different because that's how my brain works. And I thought about Augusta National Golf Club. I assume we have all heard of Augusta National Golf Club, right? It's where they have the masters. Uh, did you know, though, that there is no application process to join Augusta National Golf Club? You can only join by invitation. Once you receive that invitation, though, it's not like it's going to be easy to join. The initial cost to join ranges from $100,000 to $300,000. And then on top of that, you have yearly dues of about $30,000. It's one of the most exclusive clubs in the world with a membership of right at about 300. But because of Augusta's beauty and exclusivity, it is massively influential. It's a bucket list item, I'm sure, for probably at least five dudes in this room, if I was going to guess. So imagine if you were one of the people who gets to decide who you invite to join Augusta. You would have so many like backroom deals and power and influence. I don't even think you know what to do with it. Here's the problem. I think sometimes we want to treat the church like it's Augusta National Golf Club. We think of the church as our special club that only certain people get to join. Even if we don't say it with our mouth, we do it with our actions. And this idea, I think, leads us to the center of the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. We have a pair of questions here. Who deserves to worship God? And who gets to benefit 
from the worship of God. Jesus and the Pharisees have two different answers to this question, and those answers are the driver of the conflict here. So let's look at how the Pharisees and the religious establishment answers that question of who gets to worship God and who gets to benefit from the worship of God. The religious establishment of Jesus' day had created a system where they were on top and everyone else was below them. So their answer to their question of who gets to worship God are people who follow their rules, and they benefited from the power and influence they enjoyed in society. When I was thinking about this question, this sermon, uh, I just kind of read through the rest of chapter 19, so before, and there's two times in chapter 19 where we see Luke mention the Pharisees getting angry. So we see them mentioned angry three times in chapter 19 at the temple. The first time in chapter 19 we see it is when Jesus accepts Zacchaeus, back in verse 7. So here we see Jesus extend grace to the wrong kind of person in their eyes. Zacchaeus is a dirty sinner. He's a tax collector. He has turned his back on his people. He has embraced the Roman enemy. Surely this guy is not worthy of being able to worship God. But Jesus, he he goes in the face of that, right? He reaches out to Zacchaeus. He breaks bread in his home. Jesus forgives Zacchaeus' sins. When the Pharisees strive to put walls up, to keep out people like Zacchaeus, Jesus actively was tearing them down to bring people in. And the second time we see the Pharisees mad. Verse 19, people worshiping Jesus, the triumphant entry. This is the power shifting away from the Pharisees to Jesus right here. They didn't control the people because they were too busy worshiping God. And they can feel their power and influence slipping away and it must be stopped. So we see these two streams of anxiety that the Pharisees have, losing their power and the wrong kind of people being lit in by Jesus, converge right here in the temple. Jesus is destroying barriers to people worshiping and receiving praise and influence away from the Pharisees. Like we talked about, the merchants of money exchangers were a physical symptom of people trying to be excluded But the religious system of of classism and influence was the deeper sickness here. By Jesus purifying the temple of the money exchangers and merchants, he was declaring war on this system. He was tangibly driving out things that the religious establishment had put in place to keep people out that they didn't find worthy. So not only is Jesus challenging the status quo, but he is also receiving the praise of the people for doing so. Jesus is showing a better way than the Pharisees could ever offer, and they are losing influence. We see this play out more clearly in Matthew's account of this same passage here, right? Like I said, it was in all three Gospels. So Matthew adds this little tag in verses 14 through 16 of chapter 21. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. So what do we see here? We see Jesus bringing people into the temple, the Pharisees would not want in the temple, and Jesus is receiving praise. We see Jesus healing and teaching, and we see the Pharisees hating it. And I love the turn that Matthew uses there of praise. 
where he says they saw Jesus do wonderful things and they hated it, right? They were so indignant that they are consumed by wanting to maintain their control and influence that they are trying to snuff out an actual move of God. That is a losing battle. So why are the Pharisees mad? Because they believe that the only the right kind of people should worship God and the worship of God should benefit them, ultimately. Jesus was now directly challenging that answer. So what about Jesus, right? Why did Jesus go into the temple and start flipping tables? I think we get the biggest hint as to what Jesus was thinking here when we dive into the two Old Testament passages that Jesus quotes here. So the first one is Isaiah chapter 56. I'm going to read verses 6 through 8. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and hold fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For the house shall be called house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet uh, yet others to him besides those already gathered. So what is this passage in Isaiah about? This passage is about what God always wanted the temple to be. And that is to be a place that all who truly love the Lord can come and worship. A place for all who want to worship God in their hearts are welcome. How different is this from how the Pharisees view the temple? Massively, right? They're two completely different things between what Jesus sees as the temple and what the Pharisees see as the temple. The Pharisees are using merchants and and different forces to keep people out. And Jesus sees the temple as a house of prayer where all are welcome. But it goes deeper. Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 8 through 11. I'm going to read. That's the passages I'm going to read here. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail, while you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known. And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. So this passage of Jeremiah is a passage of judgment. God is saying that, hey, if you're a sinner and you take advantage of people and you take things from people and you're a robber, don't try hiding in my temple. Don't think you can hide behind empty religious platitudes and empty sacrifices and empty worship because I'm still going to find you. I'm still going to judge you. I still see you. Religious devotion won't cover up the stench of your heart. That's what Jeremiah is saying there. So why is Jesus so mad? Because he is completely opposed to everything the Pharisees stand for here. When Jesus is trying to tear down the walls of God, walls to God, the Pharisees exist to put them up. When Jesus is calling for true worship of the heart, the Pharisees spend hours weighing down people with the most minute minutia of the law. When Jesus is showing himself to be the true son of God and worthy of praise, the Pharisees feel their power and influence slipping away. Jesus cleansing the temple is the culmination of that up to this point. 
there's two different answers for who deserve to worship God and who benefits from the worship of God. And those two answers clash in the temple. Jesus shows here that the Pharisees' way will soon pass away. And all the Pharisees can do is try and kill the threat. But Jesus shows us that soon everyone who truly loves God will be able to worship and worshiping should benefit God alone. So what does this all mean today, right? Obviously, Jesus wins. We, we know that. We wouldn't be here if Jesus doesn't win. His vision of who gets to worship God was forever secured. When he died, the veil ripped, and he rose again. And true worship of God always points back to God, right? If someone is benefiting from the worship of God, then they're wrong, then they are, they're, they're manipulating it. But when I think about this today and what this means for us, I want us really, there's, there's two application questions I want us to consider. So the first, do I really believe that the gospel is for everyone? In the temple, we see Jesus pushing out the things meant to exclude. Do we do that today? Or are we trying to put up walls to the gospel? Do we want someone to look a certain way or act a certain way before we welcome them into our church? I know we all confess that grace alone saves and all that matters is Jesus. But does the way we treat people back that up? Does it look that way? It can be hard when someone isn't a cultural fit or even seems threatening to not want to push them out, to stay in our comfort zone, right? But Jesus leaves us no option here. We either believe the gospel is for everyone or we don't. Uh, so this is actually, it's interesting. This is something we've been working through at Mount Olive recently. Um, and I'm not telling you the story to, to bash Mount Olive. I love Mount Olive. It's been a great few years. This is just something that's been unfolding the last few weeks that's been interesting to watch. A few weeks ago, a guy visited our church legitimately out of the blue. I think he just saw our website and decided to come. He's a skinny dude. He's all tatted up. Uh, and he just looks like a guy that has lived some life, if you know what I mean. Uh, when he came in, he had two kids with him. I was able to talk to him and his kids. And, and it was great. He's an interesting dude. Uh, however, later that Sunday, the first Sunday he came, we had multiple people who viewed him and treated him as a security threat. Now, by the grace of God, he experienced enough good things and, you know, his children had a great time too, uh, that he's been coming to our church for almost a month now. He, he's been coming back. But the problem remains, right? Someone who looked like they did not fit in our church, they were obviously a visitor and extremely out of place culturally. There was a decent sized segment of the church that their knee jerk reaction was to view the outsider as a potential threat rather than as a potential new member of the family. Now, I don't say this to pick on or, or dunk on my church. Um, I think if we're honest, most of us would probably act that way in a similar situation, right? Uh, but what does that reveal about our heart? It shows us that if we aren't careful, we become suspicious of anyone that is not the right kind of person to be worshiping God. And we must be vigilant about fighting this sin. And that leads me to another application question I want you to think about. Why are you here? 
That seems like a silly question. But I don't want it to be. Why are you in church today? This is a venue to worship God. But why? Why? Why are you here? We see that the Pharisees were there to increase their power and their influence and to protect their cultural heritage. The money changers and merchants were there to increase their bank accounts. Why are you here? Why are you doing this? God wants people that worship in spirit and truth. But if we aren't careful, we will let so much other junk crawl our way into our heart. Maybe we only want to participate in church because our friends go. And we just like our friends. Uh, maybe we just want to keep participating in church because we've always participated in church. Maybe it's to make our spouse or our children or our parents happy, whatever. If you're here today and you are a believer in Jesus, take some time to search your motivations for why you are here. We should strive to be a part of the body of Christ as a Romans 12, 1 response to what Jesus has done for us. This looks like leaning in and building community and small groups. This looks like reaching out to the world around us. This looks like actually making the church a commitment in your life. Now, I don't say this next part to step on any toes. This is a word for me, too. As my kids get older, I feel this pressure, and I feel it getting harder and harder. But if you try and fit church into the margins of your life, there will be no more room for church left in your life. I almost think of this, this is a weird way to think about it, but I almost think of like a basketball player. Like if a basketball player tries to passively get a rebound, they're not going to get that rebound. You know what they have to do to get the rebound? They got to box out. They got You got to body somebody up, get them out of the way and grab that rebound, right? You have to aggressively box the world out from your margins. This looks like maybe even giving sacrificially and uncomfortably of your time and money, but if you're not intentional and in making space for church because of what Jesus has done for you, then there will be nothing left for you to give. We strive to worship God with our whole hearts, even if that costs us something. So to wrap things up here, this is probably way shorter than when Ash preaches, so I'm sorry or you're welcome. I'm not sure. Um, (laughs) Jesus cleansed the temple because those that were there were not worshiping in their hearts. They were willing to leave out those that would get in the way of their comfort and influence. We can scoff at that all day, right? And we probably should. But if left unchecked, our hearts will do the same. It's not that they could do the same. It's that they will do the same. We look at Jesus and his ministry and see how he continually reached out to the untouchable people and invited them in, even when it cost him something. Jesus shows us that everyone deserves to be able to worship God and that all the glory and acclaim belong to God. Any time our hearts feel different, we're wrong. So as we sing our hymn of response, I want you to think about a few things. I want us to think of two groups. One, if anyone here has never accepted Jesus, uh, I hope that you see through the sermon that you have access to God. Jesus died so that you could have access. Don't wait another day. Jesus died and rose again to save you and to make a way for you to be able to be in community with him. Two, for those of us that are in Christ, do we really believe that the gospel is for all people? Or maybe a better phrasing would be, do we really live like the gospel is for all people? 
This is an easy question to just say yes to and move on. Uh, but I encourage you and myself to prayerfully think through this and its implications. So I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then Sheila's going to come up and do a song. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you came, you sent your son, so that we could all have access to worship you. That we're all, through Jesus, worthy of getting to worship you, God. Um, we thank you for that, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Presenting closing song.
Amen. Uh, Tanner, thanks. Um, one, don't get used to that link. Okay. Um, we'll be back to normal next week. Okay. Um, but dude, great job. I, I was thinking to myself as you were preaching, like I was like, every t- it's obvious that you're getting reps in, right? Because every time I hear you, I go, man, like it's cool to see people growing in, in the field they're in and, and you get to be a better preacher. Um, not that you were a bad preacher before, but you're, but, but every time I hear you, I go, man, it's a good preacher. Um, and so good job. Um, uh, some of the same thing that one of the things that's cool is obviously Tanner's not been here. He hasn't listened to the sermons. I probably not anyway, um, that we've been going through the gospel of Luke. And yet in just that short passage, many of the same themes that we've been talking about throughout Luke come to the surface, right? Um, Luke's particular concern for the outsider, for the people who, um, are being forgotten by the religious establishment, right? Um, those are important questions for us all to ask. I think just like Tanner said, we are, we all have, we are prone to do that in different ways, right? You may have your own prejudices that lie in various places, but there is somebody out there who, when that person comes to church, you have a tendency in your heart to say, I'm not sure if this is the right place for you. Right. Um, and, and we want to always be uh, pushing against that in our own lives because, because Christ was pushing against it, um, in the culture of that time. Um, so thanks again. Um, uh, appreciate you, appreciate you sharing with us. Uh, real quick, as, as we're closing, um, got a text right before the service, just as an interesting kind of little thing. Uh, many of you remember, uh, Miss Jennifer. She was a lady that came, used to sit back there in the corner. Um, she's had a pretty rough year. Um, she had COVID at the beginning of the year and hospitalized her. She was in the hospital for about 30 days, um, with, with COVID issues and different things going on. Anyway, over the course of the year, we've, we've, been in touch with her, ministered to her, and she came um, about six months ago and kind of said, hey, thank you for all of your service to me and, and helping me. Um, uh, I'm going to look for a church that's got a little more community my age, um, and, and that was just something she was looking for, and we were like, cool, we understand. Don't feel like you're, you know, walking out on us or anything. But anyway, all that to say, tonight, um, she texted me, and she said, hey, I just wanted to tell you that I'm thinking about your church tonight, uh, and I'm thankful for the time I was there and appreciate, uh, everything that you're, that you had done for me while I was there. Uh, and, and just know that I'm praying for you. Um, she has COVID again. Um, but she said this time it's a much, seems to be a much more mild case. And so she's, she said, I'm good for right now or whatever, but just being prayer for her. Uh, and remember Jennifer, um, in your prayers that she would, that she would get over this bout of COVID quickly and, and, and be back to normal. So, um, but it's sweet lady. And, and she was always very kind and encouraging in all her words and prayers to us. So, um, hope you have a great week. Um, we will, we will finish up this section in Luke. Um, next week with a message that, man, again, Tanner's sermon leads perfectly right into it. Um, it's, it's a message about authority. Um, and that's what's going on in this passage too, right? The Pharisees are saying, um, we realize there's a clash in leadership here. There are two different ways we can go. You can come with us world or you can go with Jesus. 
And by what authority does Jesus do these things and say these things? And that's what we're going to be talking about uh, next week. After that, we're going to jump into our little mini series um, for about six or seven weeks, talking about the festivals of the Old Testament that we see initiated in the book of Leviticus and then in varying degrees and levels played out through the scriptures and other places. Going to be talking about specifically seeing Christ in those festivals, the way that those festivals are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, fulfilled in the church, fulfilled in our own time, but then in some cases also with a a, a uh, prophetic um, fulfillment that will come um, later on in the consummation of all things. So um, but looking forward to that. So we got one more week of Luke, a few more weeks of that, and then we'll kind of go into our holiday season, Advent um, calendar and all that stuff like that. So um, have a great week. Good to see you. Hear this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. See you next week.